Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Naktang Rinpoche. Chapter 25, Part 3. So, it's not your actions, but why you act and what you want to get out of your actions, I said. At that point, Annie Churying came to sit with us. I've been thinking, she said tentatively, that... Vajrayana seems to attract people with psychopathic tendencies. Really? Geraint said with some surprise. Yes, I've come to the conclusion that it's the only way I can understand people like Annie Jimpa. Could you define psychopathy? I asked with some great interest. I mean in terms of how they are. All I know is from Alfred, Hitch Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. That film has done a great deal to confuse the subject and actually to make psychopaths harder to recognise, Annie Churying sighed. Maybe I'll just run through aspects of the disorder. They exhibit glibness and superficial charm. That would count Annie Jimper out, Lydia interrupted. But Annie Churying continued without commenting. They tend to have a grandiose sense of self-worth and proneness to boredom and need for stimulation. They tend to pathological lying and manipulation. They're callous and lack empathy, feelings of remorse and guilt. They display shallow affect and have poor behavioural controls. That suddenly makes sense of a few people I've met, I commented, and both Garant and Lydia agreed. There are approximately eight per thousand in the population, so it's little wonder that you have run into a few. I should have added that psychopaths tend to have parasitic lifestyles, but who am I to say that as a nun? I don't think, I began, that religious mendicancy counts. Well, not in the cultural context, at least. And anyway, you're not living on handouts, are you? No, but one has to be careful not to sit in judgment. True, but that apart, what turns someone into a psychopath? That's the big question. The bad or mad argument. From what I've read, I tend to favour nature over nurture. As you know, I read psychology at university and we looked briefly at the work of Robert Hare, a 60s prison psychologist in Vancouver, who got psychopathic and non-psychopathic volunteers for tests. He monitored his volunteers on EEG, perspiration and blood pressure gauges, and gave them electric shocks. He explained to the volunteers that he'd count backwards from ten, and when he reached one, they'd receive an electric shock. So what happened? asked Geraint. Well, the non-psychopathic volunteers prepared themselves for the electric shock 
and were understandably anxious. Their anxiety registered on the EEG, perspiration and blood pressure gauges. And the psychopaths? Lydia asked. They registered no anxiety at all. The test indicated that the amygdala, the part of the brain that anticipates the pain and sends fear signals to the central nervous system, didn't function as expected. Hare concluded that the brains of psychopaths were different from normal brains. He repeated the test with the psychopaths knowing exactly how much pain they would experience, but they still had no anxiety reactions. They had no memory of the pain of the electric shock, even when the shock occurred within a minute. What? Lydia gasped. That's really creepy stuff. What happened then? Robert Hare sent his findings to Science magazine, but the editor wouldn't publish them on the basis that the EEG results couldn't have come from real people. Did he find a cure for psychopathy? I asked. No, and no one has. As far as psychiatry is concerned, to date, it's currently incurable. Psychopathy reminds me of Madame Rudra, I mused. Yes, and Devadatta, Annie Churying added. I'm wondering what Tibetan medicine has to say about it. Nothing as far as I have found yet, which is a pity because psychopathy is probably responsible for most of the pain and suffering in the world. And so we talked till it was time to prepare for the empowerment of Dorje Bernakjen. I felt I should recite a little more of the mantra of Pakshi Truru before entering the shrine room, so I went and sat in the garden to recite. The empowerment externally was similar to the empowerments of Pakshi Trulla, but the feeling in the room was entirely different again from that empowerment. Galua Karmapa looked different, but it wasn't possible to explain just how that was. It was as if he were both younger and older, fiercer and more benign. There seemed to be a sharpness of contradiction in his mien, but it may simply have been my imagination. I tried not to imagine anything or speculate about anything, but the dramatic quality of his presence remained awe-inspiring. A protector practice is a means of protecting practice. The idea is that whatever gets in the way of practice is destroyed. You're not protected in the usual way, in terms of being nursed or cosseted. Instead, offending organs are avulsed, or you're inspired to avulse them. Dorje Bernakchen was a strange being, a maniacal black dwarf with a huge butcher's knife a relentless fiend with a huge gaping mouth, carrying a skull bowl seething with oceans of blood. This was the doctor-cum-psychiatrist 
I was inviting to rearrange my reality. Thinking about it afterwards, I wondered about my enthusiasm for such a practice. Did I really want to ruin my life, or my life as the person I still recognised? Did I really wish to destroy everything which had no strong link to practice? The answer, at this point, had to be yes. But how would that play out in terms of becoming an art school lecturer? I had to do something for a living, as I wasn't a freeloader or one of the independently wealthy types who spent time in India and Nepal. I decided I'd have to dive in, as I always dove, and see what happened. I felt sincere, if somewhat anxious, about the huge space that lay beyond the limits of my capacity. Anything could happen. With that thought, I engaged in the practice. Sometime later, I fell asleep. The night became a blaze of colours. I experienced a long succession of dreams. Some were dreams in which there was no awareness. Some were lucid dreams, and some appeared to be dreams of clarity. There was a sequence of scenes that I perceived, sitting in a large white tent with Kyung Chenaro Lingma. She was dressed in a white sheepskin tuba, over which was wound a shawl composed of many intricate stripes in red, white and blue. It was not the usual Bure Gurkachanglo shawl made in Bhutan, but vaguely similar. Suddenly, but entirely gracefully, she allowed her tuba and shawl to slip from her and appeared naked to the hips. She immediately manifested holding a crystal sphere. She was gazing through it, but also gazing past it at those who sat before her. Then she held a circular mirror at the level of her throat. Then she held a large natural crystal in front of her chest. Then all I saw was sky above mountains. I was sitting on a crag of rock overlooking the valley in which the large white tent was situated. Then I was leaving the tent. I turned and two girls of a similar age followed behind me, also leaving the tent. Then I was with the two girls in some other tent where a woman was playing a large stringed instrument and singing an intricate trilling song in a key that moved between major and minor modes. There was, in the midst of a welter of such dreams, a period when I woke from sleep and became aware that Arulingma had emerged in visionary form within the room. She became the room. The vision did not last long. I went back to sleep on an impulse which seemed informed by a non-conceptual communication. I then experienced a long series of dream vignettes in which I saw many 
aspects of the Arrow Gar in Tibet. I saw a variety of people. Many seemed vaguely familiar. A few were people I knew as if they were part of my waking life. There were five women. They were all my mothers, or were mothers to me. There were sequences with music, sequences with brightly coloured thread, sequences in which arrows with streamers were moving gracefully as they might in a ballet, sequences at night lying naked and staring into the stars. Several meteors streaked across the sky. They were far brighter than meteors I'd seen before. I could see the colour of the stars, white, yellow and red. Some even seemed green or blue. The sky was peppered with light to the extent that it was not so different from daylight. Then sequences followed in which I was staring toward the sun seeing kaleidoscopic rainbows shimmering against a dark blue daytime sky. Sequences in a snowstorm. Sequences where wind was causing tent flaps to rattle like the sails of an 18th century ship. Sequences where a large stream was gushing between rocks. There were great white birds circling in the sky. A fire was burning. I was gazing at flames. I then became aware that I had woken up in Sammy Ling. In the morning, I set out immediately after breakfast. I bade goodbye to the friendly people with whom I had talked and made final prostrations in the shrine room that I dedicated to Gyalwa Karmapa. Annie Chuying was not to be found, and I decided that it was perhaps better that way, as there would be no temptation to exchange addresses. Maybe we'd meet again. That was not entirely unlikely, as the Tibetan Buddhist world was surprisingly small. Then I was out on the road, eating up the miles to Bristol. There was one thing I knew with certainty. Everything had changed. My relationship with debt was over. There was no more room for conjecture. I had made that decision before I set out to Sammy Ling, but somehow the decision had been made in the abstract. It had been a decision that was to have played out on the other side of Sammy Ling, but now I was almost there. I was riding back to the fulfilment of that decision. Her comment, So you're off to see Fu Manchu put his hat on again, emerged out of past recollections, along with my reply. No, Det, I'm going to Clacton-on-Sea to have an illicit affair with an elderly octopus. It wasn't even that Det's remark was offensive. She hadn't meant to be offensive, or if she had, there was little malice in it. I know that some people would have been highly offended by such a remark,
but she'd made it as a complete outsider. It wasn't her fault she was an outsider. It was my fault for maintaining a relationship with someone who was obviously so far removed from my main concern in life. It's not that debt was the first to fall prey to Dorje Bernachchen's cleaver. That would be to indulge in spurious spiritualised fantasy. The decision had been making itself for some time and I would have made my exit anyhow. The difference seemed to lie in the stark inevitability of the decision. Without this new sense of surety, I could have swayed for a period of time and that would have been harmful to debt. It would have been problematic for me too, but the one who leaves needs to accept responsibility for the time and place that the axe has to fall. As those words formed themselves, I understood something. Dorje Bernachchen was the time and place that the axe had to fall, whenever it fell. The falling of the axe was Dorje Bernachchen. I also realised that Dorje Bernachchen's axe was probably going to dismember more than my relationship. I wondered what else would have to go. Maybe my life as a lecturer would also have to go. Anything was possible. I remembered the words of Dujan Rinpoche. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses.